0: At the end of the day, no one is going to get better if you over-medicate, if you put them to work physically, if your punishments are so severe that you actually end up physically hurting them. They're not going to learn anything from that. They're going to be worse coming out than they were when in.
1: Welcome to Mad Waters, one family's story from both sides of the mental health system and our search to find those fixing it. I'm Adrian Seifert,
2: and I'm Michael Seifert,
1: and the voice you just heard was our daughters, whose experiences inspired our pursuit of something better. In April of 2019, we stood on an old bridge in a town 60 miles north of Athens. At the end of the pier, a giant Trojan horse cut a black silhouette against the evening sky, and below us, was this churning band of lapis-colored water. We watched as the tides shifted so quickly and with such force that a fisherman was swept backwards down the length of the strait, powerless to do anything. He sat back and let go, apparently no stranger to this experience. Our oldest daughter had always been drawn to the water. It was where she jumped into, before she could walk, It was where at five she taught herself the butterfly to make swim team. And it was where she found solace when things on solid ground made no sense. And so it was strangely fitting that here, 6,000 miles from our home in Seattle, we'd come to find her. A town so famous for this water that scientists and philosophers had traveled from all over for thousands of years to try and explain these shifting turbulent tides. That defied the laws of physics. The Greeks called the waters mad and this is where our story begins. I'm Adrian Seifert.
2: And I'm Michael Seifert.
1: And this is Mad Waters. Human beings have always been drawn to the mysterious. We are compelled to search for answers to what does not make sense. And in the case of the Strait of Euripus, it is a tide that changes course up to 14 times a day, sometimes with such violence that the water seems to rip in half, one half flowing opposite the other. Our search for answers was for our daughter, and we had traveled the equivalent of the Earth's circumference trying to get her help. Greece was the farthest to date, though. Some could see this as a tribute to our commitment, but it could just as easily have been seen as evidence of our failure. Failure of parents who happen to be trained mental health professionals. Which brings us to this question. Why do we continue to fail our most vulnerable? Why do those with the greatest need for help have so few options?
2: I don't think there's a patient or practitioner in the mental health system who thinks we are getting it right. In this series, we look at why that is, through the lens of parents and professionals in the field. We share our decade-long story and talk to experts to determine where we are now and where we are going. That first morning in the town north of Athens, my stomach lurched as we wove through congested, narrow streets, climbed steep hills leaving the city to cut through empty, silent fields. At a small gravel road, we stopped and turned into the abandoned airbase that had become home to thousands of refugees from Syria, Africa, and Afghanistan. Nothing really told us that we'd arrived, except for a small Greek flag at the entrance and a massive mural on the side of the warehouse. The painting was the face of a woman, her eyes looking out, bars above her head. This is where we'd find our daughter.
1: To explain how she'd gotten there is the easy part. She'd come with a small group of teens from a residential treatment center located in Montana. It was part of a service trip, a chance to see firsthand the plight of refugees struggling to create a new life. But to explain why she'd ended up here, that's a lot more complicated. I know that every parent says this, but my daughter is an absolute original. I am convinced that she is extraordinary in just about every way. There's a picture of her when she's about two, rolling luggage in one hand and a purse in the other, heading down our Manhattan hallway towards the door. And that pretty much summed up our daughter's raison d'etre for the next 15 years. Parents apparently were optional, and we simply hadn't gotten the memo. She was a force of nature, venturing into unknown forests, bathing with bullfrogs, that seemed a bit less enchanted with the activity than she was. And standing up to any and all injustices she saw on the playground. She readily taught anyone who would listen, but rarely agreed to be taught. She had
2: no fear about the big stuff, performing, competing, oncoming traffic. It was the small stuff that was too much. The seam of a sock or the sound of a pencil on paper. The thought that her favorite toy might break or get lost. But worse than any of this was this amazing child who was in pain, and all of our efforts to help did nothing. If there was a refrain to our lives, it was that helplessness. We'd go to therapist. She'd leave convinced we didn't love her. We'd try psychiatrist. She heard that she needed to be fixed. And no surprise, after years of this, she got angrier. Who wouldn't?
1: As she got older, though, we found it harder and harder to keep her safe. And by 2019, our daughter was at her second residential treatment center. In the middle of Yak, Montana, population 248, it was as remote as it comes. The so-called town amounted to the Yak River mercantile, specializing in a full complement of jerky, beer, frozen dinners, and if I remember correctly, some handmade ceramics. Across the street, the Dirty Shame Saloon. When we were there, a few Harleys and an RV stood outside next to a sign that said, Open for takeout, or when the gov gets his head out of his ass. The location is no accident. Not just for this residential treatment center, but for many of them. And for obvious reasons. It discourages runaways, or Code Adams, as they're called. But they are harrowing places to live in. Especially when the thing that everyone has in common is that they're all there against their will.
2: Any chance she had to get out of there, she took. The first big one came in the form of a service trip to Peru. I remember the phone call we got from the airport. I helped build a school, she said excitedly. I could hear the smile. She also climbed Machu Picchu, shopped in the open-air market, and saw a place where people found happiness in very unlikely places.
1: So when the trip to Greece materialized, we wanted to be part of it. We imagined working alongside her for a united cause, a reason to band together, to care about something other than what each of us had or had not done for each other or to each other. This idea of working with my family for a larger goal was part of my DNA. At seven, I began working with my father as his magic assistant. I have a black-and-white photograph of me to prove it. In it, I'm wearing a sequin bodysuit and a long satin skirt, cross-legged, hovering midair, a feat of levitation, accomplished at the hands of my tuxedoed father bowing to the side. We got each other. No matter how crazy or embarrassing, we were hardwired to one another, and we never questioned it.
2: We craved a way to let her know that she was loved, wanted, a part of this messy but irreplaceable social contract. She couldn't see this, and that is the devastation of mental health. The very people or institutions or treatment that may help are seen as an impediment
1: or sometimes the very problem itself. So there we were, in the cradle of Western civilization, the home of Hippocrates, namesake of the doctor's Hippocratic Oath. And it was painfully apparent that no matter our best interests, that all the treatments leading up to this had done quite the opposite of the motto, do no harm.
2: As a psychiatrist who works at one of Washington State's largest freestanding psychiatric hospitals, this plagues me daily. And in this podcast, we will talk to experts to find out what is being done in mental health today. Dr. Alan Francis has called the United States the worst place in the world to have a severe mental illness. He is Professor Emeritus and former Chair of the Department of Psychiatry at Duke, the former Chair of the DSM-IV Task Force, an international best-selling author, and, according to The Atlantic, one of the world's most prominent psychiatrists. Thank you so much for being here. It's my pleasure. In a 2017 article, Shame of Our Cities, Neglect of the Mentally Ill, You laid out the case that the United States is the worst country to have a severe mental illness. Can you tell us why?
3: Well, the numbers speak for themselves. The United States has about 35,000 psychiatric beds, but we also have about 350,000 psychiatric patients who are in prison or jails. So 90% of the psychiatric beds in the United States are really jail and prison beds. We also have 250,000 homeless psychiatric patients. There's no country that's ever neglected it's mentally ill more than we have and no country that has less excuse for it because we certainly could afford to be providing decent care and we're not. There was actually a period between the early 60s and the 1980s when we provided excellent community care for patients, and it was the Reagan administration that cut the funding for that, that led to the states, the federal government, everyone washing their hands of the severely ill. And we now have a, a situation that's completely chaotic. So we have a society that's provided shameless neglect to its mentally ill, resulting in an explosion of the homeless in many cities, and a uh, kind of, a, of disorganization on the societal scale that's easily avoidable with good treatment, and it's just a complete misallocation of resources that's resulted in this mess.
1: Can you tell us a little bit about Trieste? Because, as I understand it, in that same article, you talked about Trieste as being the place that someone would want to be if they had a severe mental illness.
3: Partly learning from community psychiatry initiatives in the United States, Partly inspired by a philosophy of uh, humanitarian care for the most vulnerable in society and the feeling that everyone's a citizen, that being mentally ill doesn't deprive you of citizenship, nor does it deprive the community of a responsibility for taking good care of you. Trieste embarked on an an experiment that's been remarkably successful. I've been there five times, and I didn't believe it until I saw it. I'd heard great things about it over the years, but until I saw it and then revisited and revisited, I couldn't believe what can be done when a city really tries hard to to incorporate the mentally ill as citizens rather than abrogate them to the streets. And so what what they've done is provide a system of community mental health centers. There are four of them in a city of about 200,000. And each of these is open 24 hours a day. They're they're beautiful facilities. They provide a social meeting place. They provide uh, medication. They provide meals. And uh, having a kind of social club that you can go to uh, gives people a sense of belonging. Now, the system also is very interested in vocational rehabilitation and the fact that being a citizen means that you're able to hold a job. And so they developed a whole system of of, of business enterprises. Much of the landscaping in Trieste is done by patients or former patients of of the mental health system. They they staff two hotels and several cafes. Um, a, A taxi system has many former patients involved in it. And so the the concept is that you don't lose your participation in the city. You don't stop being a citizen. You're not relegated to the outskirts. You're not forced to live in the streets. You're usually um, not hospitalized. They have very few beds. I think it's about five beds for an entire city and and, and some respite beds in, in the community mental health centers. But the basic premise is that everyone can be maintained in the community if there's a very, very um, close attention to needs and respect for, for the individual's ability to function. I couldn't believe they could handle violent patients in a situation with so few beds. But what patients are much less sick in the Trieste system because they're not neglected. I, I saw a patient who had been very difficult to manage on the unit, and um, he walked off. Now, in the United States, he might have been either let go to the streets where he could get into trouble and might be arrested and go to jail or become homeless, or he might be uh, forced into the hospital against his will with an altercation and, and confrontation. In Trieste, the attitude was so different. The, the nurse went walking with him when he left. The nurse walked with him. Uh, they spent an hour or two walking, and the, the nurse then said, "Well, why don't we get a meal?" And so they had lunch. They walked some more. They talked some more. Uh, the nurse asked why he wanted to leave. They had a human relationship, and the nurse finally said, "You know, I'm getting tired. Why don't we go back?" And the man voluntarily went back. When, when people don't want treatment, they're not forced into treatment, but they're cajoled into it. Uh, Visits to the house, providing food, talking, human contact, and human contact is often the, the most curative of, of, of all possible interventions. That's something that Trieste provided, provides, and hopefully will provide in full measure. And something that is really sadly lacking in the indifference of the of the American nonsense system of care. Unfortunately, there's a new uh, right wing government uh, and an austerity budget. And many of the things that have been so wonderful about Triester are now under threat. And there's an effort among the many people around the world who who love the system and the people within it who have worked so hard to make it the wonder that it is to fight back against these efforts. But it, it just shows how fragile even the best system in the world is subject to political currents. That, that can destroy the, the, the fragile nexus between a city and its mentally ill population. And the um, hope is that in the United States we'll never achieve what Trieste has achieved. But the hope is that in the United States we can take aspects of that much more humanitarian, optimistic approach to mental illness, and not relegate our patients to prison beds or the or the street.
2: Yes, I'd like to follow up on that. What are the key challenges that we have in replicating? Trieste's success here in the United States?
3: Well, a lot of it is economic realities and social attitudes. Trieste has two tremendous advantages over the United States. One, it has a declining population, which means that there's lots of housing. So um, Los Angeles, which is actually very interested in trying to emulate the Trieste model, and people from very uh, high-level people... Uh, from the various professions, uh, from psychiatry, um, the DA's office, the sheriff's office, the cops. But Los Angeles presents in in very clear form all of the problems that Trieste uh, was able to surmount because of its different economic situation. So in Trieste, they have a declining population, which leads to lots of housing. There's no problem in finding decent housing for um, the severely mentally ill in the community. In Los Angeles, the um, housing stock is completely inadequate for the population. Finding housing is the number one problem, and that's why the homeless are spread all over the city at this point. Seattle, I think you're near Seattle, right? Less so, but not an insignificant problem in in Seattle as well. The second is the uh, declining population means that jobs are open. So that if the people from the mental health center weren't filling the positions in landscaping and running the hotels and the cafes, there'd be a, a real labor shortage. They're filling a need in the community, whereas in the United States, we have problem finding placement for people without m- mental problems, and they're the first to be fired, the last to be hired. The poverty and inequality in the United States is something that's unknown for a rich country to have this much poverty, something that's unknown in, in, in most of the developed world. And and again, the mentally ill are the most likely to be uh, the victims of inequality and poverty, the most likely not to be able to afford to pay their rent the most likely to wind up on the street and from the street in, in jails and prisons. I think there's also the, the family structure. In Trieste, people tend to stay at where the, their parents lived. Um, there's a very strong sense of family connectedness and family responsibility. Families are very much involved in coming to the social clubs eating their meals with the patients at the social clubs, uh, taking responsibility. In the United States, it's very fragmented, and very often the mentally ill drift away from their families, wind up in the big cities without any um, friends or or family support left very much to their own devices. And I think there's a different attitude on the part of the mental health system, that in the United States, that, that system has been mostly torn apart by defunding. Everything is very fragmented. Uh, services are disconnected. There, there's not a sense of if I have a psychiatric crisis, I'll be able to see a psychiatric professional within a reasonable period of time. Cops have become completely um, cynical about the value of taking a mentally ill patient to an emergency room because what, what routinely happens is they have to stay in the emergency room until. The, the disposition is decided upon. Often that takes many hours, and at the end of the of the visit, the person is usually just released back to the street. There, there's no immediate appointment for a psychiatric visit. Uh, at best, they may be given a um, an appointment a month away. At worst, they'll be given a, a phone number to call. But there isn't a continuity of service um, feeling in, or or funding in America. There's The the easy access to services, there aren't crisis teams as there once were that can step in. The cops shouldn't be dealing with uh, mental health emergencies, it should be a psychiatric crisis team. There should be the ability to see the person on a daily basis until the crisis is resolved. Uh, Many people don't need to be in hospitals if they have outpatient crisis help. They certainly don't need to be in jail, and they certainly shouldn't wind up homeless because they didn't have that help. America will never provide decent services for its mentally ill until they have decent housing. And the um, Housing First movement is an an admirable effort in in that direction, but the problem is our cities have so little available and affordable housing that 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 creates tremendous obstacles. So that being a small city with a real commitment, with much less economic inequality, with families staying very much involved. All of these are uh, tremendous advantages that Trieste had, plus the fact that the tradition goes back so far. Uh, in America, our tradition is to turn a blind eye and to allow the mentally ill to deteriorate so that patients that we see in America are completely different than the patients that are seen in Trieste. We used to make our patients sick by keeping them in in personal, enormous state hospitals, 5,000, 10,000 beds, and they were neglected within the hospitals, and it made them sicker and sicker. Now we do it by not taking any care of them at all. And uh, if if patients are neglected, if they can't find a way to get their next meal, if they don't have the medication they need, if they're living in environments where substance abuse is going to be an additive problem, Mentally ill who cause the most trouble to society are those who are untreated and on substances. Being untreated and being on substances go together. People in treatment tend not to be on substances. But the um, combination of not taking the drugs that might help and taking drugs that make things worse make this population more unstable. So everything in the
1: United States conspires against doing the right thing. And I think you actually mentioned the role of... um, finances. And you probably know that many of these places are tremendously expensive. Insurance does not cover them. And I'm wondering what your thoughts are about um, money playing a role just in general in the mental health system right now.
3: Well, a terrible thing happened with the Reagan administration that Jack and his family had had a uh, terrible experience, partly their own fault, with, a, um, with his sister, as a result, he, he had a, a, a sincere and, and very um, valuable interest in this. And even before he, his administration, there had been an awareness that the state, the large state mental hospitals were disasters. disaster and uh, efforts at national commissions to decide how America should change its handling of the mentally ill. And what came out of this early in his administration was the recommendation to have community mental health centers. And these were funded with with federal dollars, specifically earmarked to the Community Mental Health Center. What happened with the Reagan administration was that the same level of money, at least originally, would be given to the state, but without the earmark to mental health. And the states were able to use that money either to reduce taxes or on other services. And they wound up spending most of it on prisons. It was a ridiculous transfer of money from bad state hospitals to to, to terrible prisons. What happened as a result of this was that the private sector got involved in mental health. And the private sector is involved in mental health, not primarily with the mission of helping patients, but with the mission of helping shareholders. And so services that are run for profit Tend to make profits, and that profit usually comes from charging more than they should and delivering less than they really, than the patients really need. Sometimes the most expensive programs are probably the worst. They provide frills and and um, you know maybe the prettier the facilities. Sometimes that means that they're focusing on attracting uh, high end clients, but not necessarily providing high end treatment. I wish there were a clear good answer, but there isn't. Um, It's important to try to get word of mouth uh, reviews on the internet and to realize that severe mental illness is a long-term problem. So that spending the whole family fortune uh, for a month or two in a facility that may be mostly a ripoff may deprive the family of the ability to respond to future needs that will otherwise be unmet. Everyone wants to do the best for their family member, but sometimes it's useful not to do the ultimate at this moment, but rather to reserve resources for what may be needs in the future. In practical terms for the United States, how do we get change here? We've established that human nature, at least in the political system in the U.S., is not particularly generous to the severely ill we as a community have felt very comfortable neglecting them for, for the last century. The only bright spots in this come from the fact that it's now at the community's doorstep that when there are this many people homeless, that they spill out of the local homeless neighborhoods and they're all over the city, as is true in L.A. So that wherever you go in L.A., even in the fancy neighborhoods, they're homeless people now. The community can no longer say not in my neighborhood because it's already in my neighborhood. If I were in charge of American psychiatry and psychology, this would be my number one priority. I wouldn't be working on other issues. I would be working like stigma. The, The worst stigma comes to mental illness because people are homeless and in prisons. Having stigma campaigns for the general public is all well and good, but it doesn't really help if there's a homeless person at your doorstep. And the way to reduce stigma is not to spend money on fancy advertising campaigns, it's to take care of the patients. But I think that the the, um, hopefulness in the situation comes from the very desperation we feel at this point, that mental illness is, is now thrust in the face of the community. And the question is, will it continue to have the punitive, let's just put the people in hospitals or leave them neglected on the streets, will it go to the root cause, which is there aren't treatment centers. The solution to these problems is remarkably simple. We see it in Trieste, we had it in the US. It doesn't take any rocket science, it doesn't take any research. It's just putting a social club in the community And allowing patients to come to it and get treatment there, it's just getting decent housing for people, getting enough professional help at all levels, social work, very important, psychology, nursing, and psychiatry. And if you provide these services, it all works. It's not mysterious. It works everywhere else in the world. We are a real outlier in how terrible our system is. And it's because so far, at least, the communities and the governments haven't cared enough and have sort of stolen resources from the people who are most vulnerable and who need them the most.
1: What I'm wondering is, if parents are considering residential treatment or wilderness programs, what would you say to parents?
3: I think that the, the only advice I can offer is that the programs vary dramatically. I think some are much more um, effective and responsible and, and less risky than others it's good to get a pretty thorough grasp of of the goals of the program the uh, people running it the um culture the other kids who are involved i think some of the programs are wonderful and some of them are probably just profit mills it's hard to be an informed consumer in general in mental health but i would encourage patients and families to try to get to know as much as possible about their condition to um be an informed consumer It's important to be trusting enough to accept good advice, but skeptical enough to worry about some of the recommendations that are made. And the more everyone's informed about what's available, and the internet is is both a wonderful resource of very accurate and useful information, but also sometimes of promotionals. So it's important to be skeptical, but also not too skeptical, so that you can't believe anything. The more informed people are about their, their decisions... The more they ask questions, I think it's very important that every time there's a visit to a um, mental health clinician, that the patient and or family jot down several questions before going in and try to get clear answers to them. The, the more you're a participant in the treatment planning, uh, the more likely it is that that treat, treatment planning will be followed and be successful. For your listeners, don't give up hope. Never give up hope. We always have to expect the worst, but, but hope for the best. And however dark things seem at any given moment, often in the future, things get very much better. I, I've seen miracles uh, hundreds and hundreds of times, but we also have to be realistic about limitations and how much any of us can do to change the, um, the situation or the individual fate of someone we love. So we can do our best, but we can't guarantee success.
1: So, I think we'll start with something that you might have some pretty strong feelings about for good reason, which is therapeutic facilities. And I'm wondering if you had the opportunity to open a therapeutic facility or consult on one, what you think would be especially important to include. And not to include.
0: Yeah, I think that I don't think I would ever open a therapeutic facility, but if I was part of one, I think that it would be really important to just let everyone who attends there knows that they have like personal autonomy. I feel like when young teens are sent away, they feel mostly stripped of their identity and of their rights all the time. And so I feel like that would be very important. Also just having trained therapists on site and just being very open and honest with families. Also creating a very personalized program for the people that come in. What I see a lot of programs doing is um, treating everyone very equal because they're trying to get the most money out of people as possible, um, saying like, okay, it's a nine to 12 month program, but we're gonna keep everyone here for as long as possible even though they're doing well or they're not doing well. It doesn't matter. Also, I think it would be important to include holistic approaches as well as like medical because not everyone responds well to medicine. And if you include the option to do, let's say, yoga or energy work or anything like that, people will feel like they have a choice, which is really important when you're trying to heal in a facility.
1: Back in Greece, we joined our daughter on her service trip. We were exhausted, but eager to get started when we arrived at Ritsona refugee camp. We slid past hundreds of metal shipping containers, with numbers spray-painted on their sides. We ducked under the makeshift clothing lines strung between these so-called caravans, and watched groups of kids in poor-fitting sandals jump through puddles Chatting in Arabic and French and Kurdish. And we waited to see our daughter. And while we waited, this is what we did. We did piles and piles of laundry in a makeshift laundromat in a metal shipping container. We organized donations in huge, clear plastic boxes. I even applied some nail polish on the fingers of young women with babies on their hips and one in their belly. And to a group of Terrifically bored girls.
2: And this is what we didn't do. Despite all of our maneuvers and machinations, all of the pleading and righteous indignation, we never got to work alongside our daughter. When we took a few walks along the rows of makeshift stores, I think we bought her a falafel at one of them. We watched her paint butterflies and flowers on the side of a makeshift daycare, and we could bear witness to yet another misstep our notion of an opportunity was seen as a travail. And an ever growing list of them that she needed to finish, simply to get out. Our daughter hadn't escaped rockets or gunfire, but there was a hard truth that we had to face. She had become an exile, too. All the hospitals, the residential treatment centers, months and then years away from home had made her that. Like a war, she could blame us and we might blame her illness, but there was no easy explanation. What there was was the undeniable fact. That the system of mental health was so broken that it punished those in the most pain with the harshest sentence, banishment from those they know and love. How have we gotten here, and can we do better? Mad Waters is about this question. Through countless missteps and tremendous humility, we have recognized that much of what we thought was true about how best to help our daughter was not. The biggest commitments, the most expensive or most advanced treatments yielded the least. And only recently have we begun to see clearly some answers we wish we had known at the beginning of this journey. We look at this from both sides of the desk, so to speak, as parents and mental health providers. There is, we have found, a huge gap between the experience on either side. In this podcast, we
1: hope to bridge that gap. Next time... We all know the story of Sleeping Beauty, a mere baby who is cursed to fall prey to a deadly sleeping illness when she turns 16. Is our genetic code like that curse? As we decode our DNA, what have we learned about our brains? In our future, are we doomed to repeat the past? Should we use our family tree as a crystal ball? Next time on Mad Waters.